Um, welcome, everyone. You're listening to Faded Mates. Welcome back. This time around, we'll be talking about book number... Well, Sarah, we're already in trouble here with the book number two, book number three. Well, I really think it's book number two, and we'll get there. First okay. of all, I'm Sarah McLean, and I write romance novels, and I read romance novels. I'm Jen Prokop. I read romance novels and talk about them a lot on Twitter. Which is how we know each other. Yeah. But now we sort of know each other because we're faded mates. That's right. Exactly. So yeah, this is episode... I'm going to go with episode two, book number two. Um, And this is why. So this is No Rest for the Wicked. And Goodreads will tell you that this is book number two, but there's a .5 book. Uh, which is an early uh, novella, but it was written, I think, after the first book, and it's a prequel. And I think the novella should just be skipped for now, and we'll we'll tell you when to read the novella. Yeah, it's on our list. Just read No Rest for the Wicked. That's where we are. Exactly. So if you, you know, have gummed it up, you can stop now, go read No Rest for the Wicked, and then come back to us because we'll be here waiting for you we're in infinitely patient people um and we will always have something to say about these books so no rest for the wicked which is the second in the series um and it is the story of another vampire but this one's a male vampire and already i have a lot to say about vampires um and another valkyrie um and this is obviously a female valkyrie are there male is it possible to have a male Valkyrie? I don't think so. And one of the things that's really interesting about this book is that it it really advances like these two groups. I think our understanding of like all of the backstory of the vampires and the Valkyries and why they don't like each other. And I think you get hints. You just get a, a flavor of that in book number one. But this now, I think it narrows into really exploring these two groups and not only how they interact with each other, but how they interact with their own immortality. So I think this book is kind of interesting in that it doesn't necessarily really advance the accession story, which gets introduced like that this is coming. I think instead it does a better job of introducing us to um, to the players, right? It's It's not a plot book. It's a player's book. Yes, exactly. And I also think, and I said this at the end of the last episode, but um, the first the first book really felt like Cressley was still sort of working out the the paranormal voice. This is her first paranormal series. Um, it's her first foray into an incredibly big world. And I think um, this book is the first book where we really see, in, in the last book, we start to see like hints of this other world. But this is the first book where we actually see pieces of that other world laid down as set pieces and and kind of signposts for where the rest of the series is going to go. And um, and I think that's what makes this so great. I think um, this is actually where I, I mean, I love this series so much, but when I really fell for this series was this um, amazing race storyline, which we're getting into and which will take several books to work itself out. Um, and I just think 
I think that the other thing that I have really been, I didn't know when I was reading that this was why I was so entertained by it, but I have always loved romances where it's a series of romances that are all happening at the same time. Yes. And I think it does this really well. I think that, and there's a couple other times where we get these like overlapping kind of um, books where things that are happening, you get this hint of what's happening in one book and a, a weighted glance and a, a look across the room and all that becomes so much more meaningful than when you read the next book, right? Like you get those layers and layers. Yeah, because you start to see the craftsmanship of the story. Um, you start to see how thoughtful she's being when she's when she's putting all of this down on paper and presumably she didn't know and this is a question that we'll we'll ask but she didn't know how big this story would be and she's already laying the groundwork for it to be immense which is what it is now i i think it also though shows some of the limits of the world building and we can talk a little bit more about that later um that especially now that like we see the 18 books, like there's some things here where I'm like, this is, I don't know. I don't want to necessarily get into it right now, but I'm, I'm making a mental note to talk about that too. Um, before we start though, talking about the book, I have a question for you, which is, do you watch or are you a fan of the TV show, The Amazing Race? Because I'm not. And I'm wondering if that makes a difference in your reading of this, that I'm not going to have that like cultural moment that you, that you might have. I have seen a few episodes of The Amazing Race. I'm not an Amazing Race, you know, aficionado, um, but I love the conceit of it. And um, I really, I mean, I, it will come as no surprise to you as somebody who's read my books or to anybody who's read my books um, that I really like pop culture echoes in my romance novels. I love them in my historicals. Um, and so for me, The Amazing Race really worked that that side of things really worked. Also, it does such a good job of moving the plot forward in a really straight shot, um, well, which I love. Yes. And I think, number one, that's a really nice transition to us talking about the Valkyries as a race of 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 women, because their obsession with pop, pop culture, I think, really intersects with yours. But I also would what I would like to say that, like, I think the the thing that's interesting is the advancing of the plot, but also the way that each of these stops, each of these places that they go and the dangers that they um, meet up with are also really symbolic. And I enjoyed sort of reading that part, right? Like when we get Katerin, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I think that that's the other thing where you really start to see the mastery that like so many layers are working at once. It's working as symbol. It's working as plot. It's working as action. It's working as character development. And to see that all stacked up, it's really, it's really something else. I totally agree. And also, um, I think that there is some really thoughtful, there are some really thoughtful choices here in terms of um, using the pop culture uh, references to echo what we've been talking about and what you sort of brought up so thoughtfully last episode about modernity being such an important piece of this puzzle, because um, I want to talk about this hero in light of the last hero um, as, as a foil for, and also as, um, a partner to the last hero in some ways. Um, but we are definitely getting ahead of ourselves. Let's talk about what this book is about. Let's do a quick plot overview. 
Okay. So I think, why don't you let me do it? You did it last time. I'm not sure I'll be as good. Well, let me try it and then we'll decide if I'm up to the task. Have at it. Have at it. Katerin the Cold Hearted is our Valkyrie hero. Heroine, sorry. And she is, um, we, she's mentioned in the last book. She's one of Emma, Emma's aunts. And she is this fierce warrior who is so well known for hunting vampires that she then breaks off their fangs and puts them on a necklace. And at some point in the first book, I think Emma says that like this thing now stretches like across rooms of Valhall. And um, she is called by some town, like villagers in a little Russian town to come and rid the like castle near them of this vampire that they're all really afraid of. Yeah, but who seems to not really be much of a problem. Yes, exactly. They're not exactly the most brave humans you've ever met. He's like a quiet dude in a castle, but for sure, like. A vampire. I definitely assumed the hand of Nyx played a part in this call to her. Oh, right. Yeah, of it's course. not really explicitly stated, but you're right. There's zero reason for them to actually like stir this up. So I'm assuming it's just the hand of fate, right? In that being Nyx. Nyx is almost always the hand of fate. So anyway, she arrives and she's kind of like going to kill this guy. And when she and it's his name, Sebastian. And when she gets there, he's like a sad vampire sitting in his sad, lonely vampire library <laughs> reading books. And he's kind of like, have you come to kill me? And she's like, yes. Why aren't you putting up a fight? And instead of killing him, she ends up making out with him. And he is very quickly realizes that this thing that he's been told that he because oh my god I'm doing a terrible job at this (laughs) you're not it's great it's delicious well she begins to make out with him and then yes he discovers it's his faded mate and I will say this to me is one of it's in the first chapter one of the most memorable scenes is his she bloods him right so we get this whole new look at what happens to a male vampire when he meets his fated mate which is called his bride right because as of right now we've only seen we've seen we've spent time with a female vampire who um, if you'll remember from last book Um, had no there was never female vampires are thought to not exist so she's like special in a remarkable way and so this is the first time that we've really like spent time in the head of a male vampire and he is he was turned against his will by his brother and so he never wanted to be a vampire he knows very little about vampires he knows nothing about the lore and when his heart starts beating he thinks it's an earthquake it's this amazing moment where he literally doesn't know what's happening to him because he has not felt his own heartbeat in 300 years and so he is like you're my bride they make out and she is really freaked out like she on the other hand right so he is physically brought back to life by her meanwhile she's the cold-hearted for a thousand years she has not felt any emotion and all of a sudden she's feeling things again so he brings her emotionally to life it's we see this again this like mirroring of like what their dilemmas are we saw it with emma and lachlan and we see it again only this time it's layers and layers and layers and this is like the first one and it's it's really what's on the surface right i'm physically brought back to life by you my my, i have an erection my heart is beating again i feel the blood literally rushing through my body and for her it's 
I'm feeling feelings I haven't felt anything in a thousand years. And both of them are just knocked out by this whole inner ch- like I mean it's just like watching two toddlers run into walls <laughs> but I think what's really interesting here and I feel like we could spend an entire episode just talking about these two and this meeting because I think this meeting is so representative of so many interesting things that are that play out through the series and through the book um but the first thing that i i have a few thoughts on this that i want to i want to talk about one is the fact that she is cold and unfeeling and he makes her feel by brute sort of force in the sense that he's not in charge of it but like she's she can't resist it like it just happens like as much as she, she would choose if if Catherine had her choice she would choose not to feel absolutely um because she is so deeply traumatized by um the events of her past so um just to go back a little bit in terms of her story it's a very it's a very similar story to um oh my god hero of the last book is Lachlan Lachlan thank you to Lachlan's where we have seen so and I want to I want to sort of put a pin in vampires in general because um this is the second time that we're seeing vampires represented as like the pure evil of of a world right um so Lachlan had been uh tortured and in in enchant by you know chained in mystical chains and we have um Catherine, who a thousand years ago was in a massive battle during an accession during the war, um, and uh, she had sympathy toward a vampire, a young vampire who she was about to kill in battle, and then um, she she took pity on him and let him live, uh, only to have him murder her two sisters. Right. And in that moment, she vowed to cut down vampires whenever she approached them. Um, whenever she, she stumbled upon them and she also vowed never to feel again. She, she lost her emotion. Now, here's the thing that's amazing. This is now like the second, you've just identified sort of the second mirror image, right? So one is he's physically awakened. She's emotionally awakened. Here's the second one. She feels she has wronged her sisters, whereas he was wronged by his brother. So there's this other sense where she feels that she betrayed them by, you know, like she did them wrong and their death is her fault. Whereas um, Sebastian did not want to be turned by his brother and his brother overrode him and did it anyway against his wishes. So we also have this, like that's the other second sort of mirror image is I was betrayed by my sibling. I betrayed my siblings. And at the same time, both characters, because you can't have a romance novel where two people are, are you know, completely foiled um, by each other, foils to, to each other. So what's really fascinating, though, is that technically both of them were turned by vampires, right? Yes. Vampires did both of them wrong. And something that we haven't talked about is that Sebastian is a special kind of vampire. He's uh, what's called a forebear, which means um, he is a turned vampire somebody and there are there are natural born vampires and they have a a whole set of rules which we know about emma is a natural born vampire in the first book she can't lie um you know she can drink blood from the vein no she can't can she well it's the the difference is the four forebears choose to not drink blood from the vein right they forbear right they forbear from that act 
Right, because we know that drinking blood from the from the straight direct from the vein, if you kill someone, you could you can go mad, um, which is sort of a setup for many other characters in this in this series. So, but then the other piece of this is when you are a turned vampire, part of you're basically considered lesser in yes. the lore, um, and so the rest of the immortals, the ones who are not who did not start out human, um, kind of love. Um, keeping them in the dark it's like a massive game of knowledge keep away yes none of the forebears really know anything about the lore so when sebastian starts learning he doesn't even know what she is he has no idea that valkyries are real and in fact there's this really hilarious exchange where he says to her like i thought you'd be bigger like taller and she's like what is that supposed to mean? Right? <laughs> and he's like, well, that's the story. And she's like, look, if you had your ass handed to you by a five foot five woman, wouldn't you instead tell everyone this story about how big and bruising, you know, they were. And he's like, mm, right on. Good point. Yeah. Well, so this is so this is where I'm at is is there are all these moments where you see the two of them are the same and then also incredibly different. But basically, vampires took both of their lives in the sense that a vampire took her sisters and and her emotions and his brother, a vampire, um, took his choice yeah his life and his choice and and turned him into a vampire against his wishes he says this happens in the first chapter he says i don't want this and his brother thinking that he's doing right um turns him into a vampire anyway so here we have two people one of whom is a creature that both of both of whom hate the creature that sebastian is um but sebastian sort of has to live in his skin as something that he doesn't he doesn't love um and then and what i really want to talk about here though is this idea that he makes her feel because it feels like um it's such a it flips the whole romance paradigm on its head um which we're going to see over and over again in this series um but it is until sort of these this moment it feels like in romance i'm not sure there are that many and I've been thinking about this all day. I'm not sure there are that many romances prior to this where it is the heroine who has to be taught to well, feel again. I mean, it's interesting because that trope about being frigid is not about emotions. It's about sexual, like, right? And I mean, so we, we yes and no, like, yes, right? We get emotional women who are sort of like locked like locked away or like can't access their sexuality but we very rarely see a heroine who is emotionally cold and that's like her primary right like it does and and then the 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 flip side the other character is one who's had their consent taken away from them right so yes there's definitely some like what feels like kind of gender swapping for these classic tropes where she's then instead like the cold kind of alpha I'll kick your ass and he's the one who's like I'm just sort of sad and feeling sad for myself in my sad house that's very different I mean he's also sexually repressed quite literally absolutely absolutely he is the twist the the flip and valkyries are so while Catherine may not be um you know as sexually 
confident and as sort of interested in emotion as um, the rest of the the coven of Valkyries. The reality is that um, Valkyries are deeply emotional. And I want to talk about that in a bit, too, but we'll get there. Yes. So actually, no, let's do it now because I want to talk about Valkyries. I want to talk about the Valkyries as a group of people because Katarin is of them, but really different from them. And the deal with her, like not feeling emotions is, and it, I did not pay as much attention to this until I reread it, is they are the amazing race that they're part of this thing called the Talisman High talisman's high sorry is hosted by the goddess of impossibility her name is riora and there's and i really paid more attention to this this time around and the reveal and i think we've decided right to just be spoilerific now we're not going to really try and withhold this is that cat Katerin didn't really ever know why she lost her emotions like something happened and she was grateful for it then there's this really fascinating throwaway line where Katerin thinks about the things that could could kill a Valkyrie. And it's like beheadings, a mystical assassination, or sorrow. Mm-hmm. Just being really sad is enough to kill a Valkyrie. And later on in the book, Riora essentially reveals that she's the one who took Katerin's emotion. She didn't really mean to give to take away all her emotions but that Katerin's sorrow about the deaths of her twins like her two sisters they were triplets that was so destabilizing to the entire group of Valkyries the whole 12 covens that if but she was too strong to die she like right so her sorrow was debilitating she was too strong to die from it and so Riora had to step in to essentially like contain this sorrow that was going to be enough to sink every Valkyrie in the world. That's how powerful her sadness was. And how powerful the Valkyries are. Yes. And I think that that's what struck me. Again, this is not a book that I've read. I don't think I've reread this since the first time that I read it. Um, And one of the really powerful things this time, just like last last week when we were talking about the first book in light of the world and the Kavanaugh hearings, um, this book just felt like it just hit me over and over and over again how powerful this these women are. Um, and it felt really rewarding to me to read this book where um, she and her and her sisters, her Valkyrie sisters and cousins, etc., um, are really the most powerful group of immortals that we've interacted with so far and we will meet other powerful immortals but the valkyries feel like to a woman they are incredibly powerful versus i think when we meet the other characters in the series when we meet the witches or we meet the demons or we meet the fae we start to see there's an ebb and flow of power among them but all the valkyries are immensely powerful. And this this idea that you could bring down the world with your sorrow felt very empowering to oh, me. Oh, absolutely. It did. It really did. I I felt the same way. I I I kind of I read past these, right? Like I don't real I didn't have a real strong feeling either way about this one, but as rereading it, I was really drawn into um the um, 
like the emotional lives of these two characters who have been so removed from the world, right? Like there's a powerful interiority to kind of both of them. And then when they like kind of run into each other, it's, it's kind of painful to watch in some ways because as hard as they're trying to make these connections, they don't have the basic skills to even talk to each other (laughs) really. Right. And so there's all these ways in which, um, you know, I talked about like action being what builds these characters um, and yet action sort of fails them too. And so um, I really, the, the amazing race is such a perfect metaphor for their, for their literal journey, right? Like not just around the world to these places, but that they have to figure out how to be together. That's not something they have, either of them have any skills for at all. No, and it's also an issue with them. And I think this is a book where I I feel like these are two characters who take from each other a lot. Um and in ways that um are both incredibly powerful and really devastating. Um and I there are moments that I was really sad uh, along, and and maybe maybe that's the point. But there's actually the moment where he, um, so Sebastian is a vampire. Like we said, he's never uh, he's never taken from the vein. He's never bitten a human. Um, and there is a moment where they're you know he they're having sort of a sexual moment, and he bites her accidentally. And he doesn't bite her. He scrapes her he scrapes her with a with a fang and she bleeds and he tastes her blood and he is instantly both incredibly you know full of pleasure and also just devastated that he did this thing to her um both because he's always promised himself that he would never do it he's been a part of a of a well he hasn't really been part of a community but the community that he was part of sort of makes this verboten but then also because she is so angry with him and he doesn't know the implications of what he's done um because he's not smart right he's not part of and by that i mean like he's not smart he's not no he's not wise to the way of the lore and so he doesn't he doesn't know what's about to happen to him right so he he um tastes her blood he he drinks from her and then he inherits her memories and he can see what he's taken from her over and over again right he can see the vampires took from her and that he's taken from her and he can feel her anger and he understands it and it i it's a devastating scene that i think is really beautifully written um because at the same time there's this flip of what she seems to be taking from him by virtue of the amazing race and what what is to be won from it. Well, and I think one of the things that I found, like, so in book one, we talk a lot about, and, and Emma talks a lot about, it's about finding your strength and being an immortal, right? But these are two characters who really, it's about pain, right? There's a point, I think, where someone says, like, I can live forever, but that doesn't mean I don't experience pain, 
or you know she and Regan have this really interesting conversation and it's in Antarctica and I don't think that's an, a mistake right like this is the moment where she is coldest him she's met him but determined to freeze him out right and the, the landscape like matches her her will and she says to Regan essentially something like it's better to like forego a moment's worth of happiness to prevent this future pain. And they're talking at that point about Regan. There's this like hint that about who Regan's mate will be and and that this is someone from her past that's going to be reincarnated. But they have this moment where they understand this together. But I think that that that's exactly right. Like the first book was really all about kind of like, who am I? And the second one is like, how can I live with this? Exactly. And I think that's a really, I think, and that's, that goes back to what we were talking about before about the book, this, this book being, the first book is the, is the first book in the, in the line of the, of Immortals After Dark, but this is the first book of the series, it feels. Yes, right. Right. Absolutely. I think I could see that, right? Like, it's, the setup is done, right? And now it's time to, like, make make it happen and I think you know I I think I use the phrase like virtue virtue signaling and this is really like further signaling to me that she's interested in putting like heroes and heroines in positions they don't typically inhabit and and seeing what happens and she's really also interested in exploring um characters who and I, I'd sort of written this down. It's kind of like, what can you accept about each other and what you have to accept about yourself? And we saw that last time too, but I think we see that again and again and again in this, in this series. Okay. I want, one of the things I'm noticing is like, we laughed a lot more last time and it's not that this book is without humor. Um, like one thing that really made me laugh is there's this part at the beginning where Katerin tells him like there's three big turnoffs she says and the first one is don't crowd me right and he's like but what are the rest of them and she's like work on number one for a while right (laughs) and then like we and you know I'm kind of reading along like what's the next one and then it's essentially the same one later it's like don't pressure me Right. So she's, it's like one and two are very similar, but then there's this hilarious part at the end after they finally like have sex and he kind of disappears. It's against his will. He doesn't really mean to, he doesn't even know how long she's gone. And then she tells him that the third rule, the third bring turnoff is not calling, which is really in direct opposition <laughs> with rules one and two. But I think that goes back to that whole, all the things in this book are playing with what's both possible and impossible. And so lots of things that seem like like they would be totally in conflict with each other somehow magically work and we're I think we're meant to understand that it's Riora's impact on this kind of closed system of their relationship that makes this happen so there are things that happen in this book that never happen again um for example Sebastian figures out how to trace directly to her when for the entire rest of the lore and all the vampires and tracing beings, it's you can only trace to places you've been before. We never see this again that anyone else can do it. And I think it's clear because it's Riora that the impossible is possible, right? Um, there's a really funny part where, um, you know, there, uh, yeah, like so or even the whole time travel, like, 
which I just find very tedious. I was like, time travel, you know, who cares, right? Well, I mean, we should, I'm just going to pause there because I think we should talk about what the, I think we should just explain what we're talking about when we talk about the amazing race and what we mean by time travels. So there is an amazing race every 200 and something years. Um, and Katrin has won it for, I don't know, four or five times, right? Yeah, four or five times in a row. She's, and this is because she lacks emotion, right? So she's able to just be cold and get it done. And, um, the way Riora sets it up is this, um, is she puts together, it's basically a scavenger hunt. Like you go, the more complicated things on like the top of Everest or whatever are more points. Um, and you, the person with the most points, uh, at the finals, uh, the the person with the most points at the end wins a prize that is want it's desired by everyone and this goes back to um we talked about this we talked about this before but this question of um what could an immortal all of these people are incredibly rich they know everything they have everything they don't die whatever they want is theirs um and uh what's fascinating about this is that in this particular case, um, the question is, well, what could I imagine Cressley sat down and was like, well, what could an immortal possibly want? And if you are immortal and have lived forever and will live forever, it seems like the only thing you could possibly want is the chance to go back in time and change something um, and re- reset your fate. Um, Nicely said, yes. And so... Uh, and Katrin wants this more than anything because she has seen her sisters die. She knows that if she did not hesitate and she did strike down that vampire, her sisters would not have died in that moment. She can pick the exact moment that her life changed. Um, interestingly, Sebastian also has a moment that he can point to and say, if I went back to that moment, everything would change. But it's interesting. He has no, he has nothing tied up in winning this item it's just called brain's key because he doesn't believe it will really work which is his humanity his his flawed his his small brain right again it's i mean there is a really interesting piece here that this is the second hero we've met who has um who is struggling with a world beyond what he knows and yet he is an intellectual right so the Valkyries are obsessed with pop culture and video games and, you know, all the things that are changing. He shuts himself away. And there's a part, for example, where it says, like, he'd read about how airplanes worked, but he'd never been on one. Right? And so he is fully aware of what's going on in the world, but has decided to not interact with it in any way. And I think that that's really meaningful, again, for this, you know, she's, again it's like this difference between she's all action and he's all contemplation he's like been sitting around thinking for 300 years but that all that it's all intellectual um without any real it's you know it's just all it's like what you know what you'd say is like you know they're book smart but not street smart Mm -hmm. but also it's a it's a question of he's not street smart as a vampire or he's not book smart as a vampire either he doesn't know anything about this world the only thing he knows is how to close his eyes and trace directly to the woman who is his bride right and he knows how to fight because he was he was a you know big badass estonian general or something 
Yeah, well, and I got to say, um, the one thing I didn't say about that scene where he he um, he drinks from her the first time is that it comes immediately after a fencing scene. And we all know how much I love fencing scenes. Word. Um, but they have like a full sword fight and it's delightful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, and it's part of his like letting go of this old school, like, you know, he just assumes he's going to kick her ass because he's a man and she's a woman. And then he realizes, I mean, the his understanding of how ferocious she really is and the cruelty to which she seems capable of. And what he really wonders is, and again, I felt like this was very like turning sort of these gender roles on his head, was him thinking, I'm going to be have to be meaner myself if I want to capture this one, because I don't have a chance if I'm like Mr. Nice Guy. Yeah, exactly. He's changing for her from the very beginning of this book. I mean, from page one when she meets him and he's sort of a sad, wet noodle. <laughs> He's constantly, I mean, the mo- he's literally a wet noodle. I know. Poor Do baby. Do you see what I mean about wet noodle? <laughs> Do you get it? I get it, Sarah. Um, <laughs> I'm like, oh, Sarah. Um, no, he's he's literally like, and then, and the moment he he meets her, he's instantly sort of manned. Right. Um, literally. Which is fascinating. It's just a... There is there's just a fascinating play of character here because she is so incredibly strong. Um and he really is like in the he could be a Mary Sue. Yeah, it's I I think what's fascinating is this to me. Like, is he at some point is he a virgin? No, but he had some bad No, I was going to say is he a beta? Like is he are we looking at a beta hero here and maybe we are. Yeah. You know what's interesting is I'm in, <laughs> I'm going to what you're like <laughs> Wait, did we is it you I had that beta conversation with where I was like, Cressley's written betas. And we were both like, what? <laughs> and I don't know. I think that might have been some crazy Twitter thing. It was the, um, it, it was the, the, it was the vampire chained to a bed later in the series. Yeah. And you were like, let's not start people looking for betas with Cressley. <laughs> you know what's interesting? And, and I, like, Sebastian's fine, but Katerin is the star of this show. And, Often looking back at at books when I haven't reread them recently, I will say her, I love her heroines. I love them. And it's not that he is, he, he loves her and that feels real and she deserves someone who's just like nice and solid and steady, but there's not much. I mean, even he has his alpha tendencies, but I did not find him as compelling a hero as some of her other heroes no because well i know what kind of heroes you like (laughs) um and i think but i do think if you are listening and you are not a paranormal reader typically um and you you aren't sure about this because you know (laughs) i mean the the hero of our first foray into this chews off his own foot (laughs) Although at the end, doesn't Sebastian has to take off his own arm? And I was like, enough with the amputations in this series. It is enough. It needs to stop now. It ain't gonna stop. Oh my God. I'm like, heavy handed metaphors. But, but, but I really actually do think that Sebastian is a really lovely hero. Oh, yeah. I think if you are interested in a softer hero, this is probably as close to a cinnamon roll as 
Cressley's gonna get. Sure. Yes, that's true. <laughs> You're like, not a cinnamon roll. But he's, <laughs> I mean, as close as she's going to get, yes, that is a true statement. But, you know, this is also a guy who later on, when he thinks that she's, you know, with this other man, he like drags her down a hallway and like they, like he, it's, it's consensual. She's into it, but he like realizes she's not wearing underwear and is basically like, let me just get some fingers up in there. I mean, he is like, right? There's nothing wrong with that. No, (laughs) obviously. But it's like a really amazing. I mean, that's when you really see that he still that's all like built into his system too, right? Like his possessiveness and his sense that, you know, but it's I don't think he thinks he does that he is owed her. I think he he thinks he has to win her. And that's how he's different than Lachlan to me. In fact, he says that he articulates that. um, Yeah. And and. She says at some point you ha- he's they're talking and and he says, um, you know, I I just I love being with you. Like he has this yes. moment where and it's so honest and real and it feels like a conversation you would have with just a normal human person who you are attracted to. And he says, I, I enjoy being with you. And she says, you have to like being with me. I'm your bride. Right. She gives herself up to the Lord. She says, you know, this is this is part of it. Everything, everything is faded. Um, and he says, this is the quote. He says, of course, it's mystical compulsion that's making me so attracted to you <laughs> and not the fact that you gave me a good look at how your mind works and I admired what I saw. I know. He loves her brain. And I just, <laughs> that's all. We just want to be seen, yes. fellas. Yes. <laughs> You know what else, though? I think the other big change for him. And so, okay, there's a, there's a lot of really interesting things about fate that we should talk to because it's the name of our podcast. And also, but just like really important to the book. So I really, one of the key things for understanding the Valkyries is they believe absolutely in fate. And so then there's this really interesting part where Mist, who's another Valkyrie, is talking to Katarine. And she says something along the lines of, like, Sebastian is, he's sort of like an, a, a death before dishonor kind of guy. He doesn't understand that you should do anything for the ones you love. And I found myself thinking a lot about this because if you believe that the hand of fate is going to rule everything then why wouldn't you do everything for the people you love? It's going to turn out the way it is anyway, but at least then they know how you feel about them. Right? And it's not, an, and, and, but it's not until the very end that he comes around to that way of thinking where he understands, like, I just have to show her that I love her and leave this up to fate because I, that's all I can do. And that's when he like wins her over and, and wins me over, by the way, right? I mean, I think his sacrifice at the end, which is essentially his willingness to, you know, he's like, okay, we're going to use this key to go back and save your sisters. But he fully understands that it means I might never be a part of your life, right? Like your whole history will be rewritten if we do this. And he does it anyway because he loves her. And he... And it, you really believe it. I really found myself believing that he was going to take that risk for her. Oh, well, I mean, of course he was. And that's the, 
that's the covenant, right, of the romance hero is that ultimately he will sacrifice the one thing he wants the most in the world for the happiness of the heroine. Right. And in this particular case, part of the reason why this book works so well is because the one thing he wants in the world is the heroine, right? So by giving her up, to by sacrificing his desire for her so that she will be happy, I mean – that's all any of us ever want, right? <laughs> it's so simple. It's so easy. Exactly. I mean, Eric has has never done that. He eats all the cookies in the middle of the night. <laughs> I could tell you the most romantic thing that Daryl ever did for me, but I he'd be really mad at me. I'll tell you off of the podcast. <laughs> but it really, okay. but it was amazing. And it's like the most romantic thing anyone's ever done for me. Well... I would like to, I look forward to hearing that. Yes, of um, course you do. But also, I think that there is a question here of, again, this is the story of family. Oh, um, yes, absolutely. Family on a number of levels. And I love, so one thing I want to talk about that we haven't talked about yet is uh, sex and the vampire and the, no. <laughs> I'm like, we haven't talked about sex yet? <laughs> Fail. One thing that we haven't talked about yet is this kind of emotion and the Valkyries. Um, the lightning. Yes. I want to talk about. Um, because I think this is also Cressley putting a stake in the ground on women and sex. Um, I think, so a couple things are, are interesting here. One, this is the first book where we start to see about uh, birth control and the Valkyries. Um, meaning as long as Valkyrie doesn't eat, she can't get pregnant, which is a really nice, tidy way. Well, of... and it means no one ever has to go to the bathroom and you know, and I, <laughs> <laughs> right. But it's also a very clear statement on women and sex and, um, being able to sort of put women in charge of their own sexuality and a woman in, woman in charge of her own body. Um, Valkyries are fully in charge. They cannot, you cannot impregnate a Valkyrie unless she chooses to be impregnated. Yeah, it's amazing. And that's pretty fabulous. And they're, it's literally electric, right? Like, like the whole, like they produce lightning when they are really emotionally or sexually charged. And meanwhile, there's scene where they like, they're flying in a plane and it's like all lightning outside. And I was like, wait, <laughs> this seems ill-advised perhaps you should get on the ground <laughs> it's fine you know here's a science thing science friend uh planes are built to withstand lightning well there you go so i know that for a fact because i'm terrified of flying so now i know everything about flying um <laughs> but the but the lightning thing is really interesting right because um it's not just lightning it's emo it's not just sex it's emotion oh in yes general, absolutely right so there's this uh so you know obviously since we're we're doing spoilers so aside from sex right so there's so there is the moment the first moment that we actually see the lightning well i think we we see it in the book before but the first moment we really see valkyrie lightning here is when she is at the um they're in this uh hidden away cavern that is the temple of riora and you have to know how to get there to get there you have to know it exists and know how to get there to get there because it's hidden um and he turns up in this cavern and she is so moved by him being in her vicinity that lightning starts to crash all around the temple and everyone knows 
the cater and the cold-hearted is feeling something because Valkyries are unable to hide their emotions, um, which feels, again, very much like women in the world, like women and their silly emotions, except a Valkyrie's emotions can bring down the world. And then when ultimately Lachlan makes, uh, Lachlan, excuse me, Sebastian makes his his uh, sacrifice and we get to a place where um where um Katerin dies I mean she falls into fire right it's suicidal almost right well she says you bring me back yes and then we'll bring them back right the key will work twice they need they need one of them needs to die in order for them to get the key and so it's this moment of trust, right? Where she knows that, for I mean, and this is when you like this, you know, there's this, these two crazy kids are, it's all going to work out, right? Like she, when she trusts him to not only save her, but save her sisters, right? So his sacrifice, like she's sacrificing too, right? Like, and, and one of the things, I mean, this, this trust, it's fascinating. And you and I were sort of talking about this earlier, but I, I really wanted us to talk about it is. You know, there's a there's a thing that sort of happens in romance landia where people get frustrated with books where it's miscommunication that causes the problems. Like, why didn't they just sit down and talk about it? And I, I understand that. And I've said that myself. I'm not saying I haven't. But I also realize it's incredibly difficult to have a perfect conversation every time. And Katerin and Sebastian are constantly like saying the wrong thing to each other, right? Like, you know, he'll sort of say something and be like, ooh, and he can't take it back because she's so mad and she gets furious. So this moment where she trusts him and she knows he's going to do exactly what she needs him to do. Whereas up in, you know, and, and, and earlier in the book, she's like, you know, I don't, I don't trust you. You, you love your leverage, Right. This is this really important moment where she's like, OK, I'm going to give myself up to this, fe- these feelings I have for him and trust him. And then this then furthers the trust he has in her. Right. Like and that's really this moment where, you know, it's both it's both words and action together that get them through. And on top of it, there is this sense of her trust in him just being an extension of her power. Right. I mean, in order to trust him as much as she does and throw herself into fire, sacrifice herself into fire so that she can they can ultimately she's still doing this for her sisters. Right. She's still making these choices for her sisters, but she and she's trusting him to love her enough to go with her on this journey, right? Which I think goes back to your issue of, um, you know, the Valkyries leave everything up to fate because they, she believes they are fated to be together because she is his bride. And therefore, he will support her in whatever it is, whatever endeavor she has, right? It never occurs to her that she, um, that he might not be there to help her get her s- sisters back. Right. Well, and I think that's why it's important that it's fire, right? Like, so remember, she's, it's all symbolic, right? Like, she's freezing him out in Antarctica, but now it's this, like, literal river of fire. And so we see this progression from, like, cold-hearted Katerin to, like, I'm going to give myself up to this thing that, like, I'm literally, like, that version of me is going to be gone forever when I come back. 
Right. Right. And then she comes back to discover that Riora has made, has basically made the deal more complicated, which is to say that if they do go back in time and save her sisters, uh, Sebastian will lose her because she'll be happy and she'll never come to his castle. And that'll be that. Right. And we knew that was coming all along. Like, I didn't even, at that point, I didn't need that emotionally. I felt like the big emotional payoff was um, was this scene where she, like, lets go. Right? But also... Really? That's yeah, really interesting. Well, partly because I think I always, and this is back to, like, the time travel thing. I'm always like, yeah, nah, 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 time travel. I don't know. Like, right? It just is not a trope that I find really... Yeah. Right. Like it always is somebody. I don't know. Like if I think about it too hard, my brain starts to hurt. I'm like, sure. But the crafting of that scene, right? The crafting of that arc of the the, the sort of arc of the dark moment there is really powerful because what you see is Riora saying to Sebastian, um, okay, so here's the deal. You can make her happy or you can make you happy. And which is it going to be? And I mean, of course, we know he's going to choose her. We know he is. But the like powerful sort of heart wrenching moment there is the awareness that like she won't be happy without him. And he still isn't 100 percent sure about that. And this goes back to your point last episode about how it's never the females who are fully faded. They don't. It's like the females have to choose. The females of the lore have to choose their mates rather than the males of the lore who are sort of gifted their mates. And so they're never, the males are never 100% certain. And part of the joy of that as a reader is that you don't want your hero to be 100% certain of the heroine. You want him to fight for her always. Right. Well, and there's this great, I mean, back to the whole like conversational moment. So <laughs> there's like this, one of my favorite moments in this book actually is and I think that's why, like, I didn't need the big sweeping moments in this book. It's like the little moments that tickled me. And there's this part where it's after, you know, he thinks she's gone off with this, like, Colombian drug lord or whatever. And he, and she says to him, I wasn't really going to go with him. And he was like, I don't know, he says something like, well, okay, if you say so. And she's like, well, I do. And he's like, no, you're supposed to convince me. You're supposed to, like, listen to me and understand how upset I am. And I really found, like, those moments to be like I don't know there's so many tiny little like steps that when we get to the end of course we know he's gonna do what she needs to do it didn't feel surprising it felt inevitable and that doesn't mean it wasn't pleasing to me right it's just that it was um I don't know like I I I knew all along what was I don't know I you knew they were going to get together all along. It was going to be a happily ever after. I'm not <laughs> sure how I knew that exactly. But yeah, I don't know. Like those moments, like the big sort of like, now we're going to go back and save your sisters. I, um, of course they were right. Like I, I, and again, maybe that's the whole, like she set it all up for that to happen. I knew that he would do it. I, I, it could not have been any other way. Well, of course. Right. Or else he just wouldn't be a valuable hero. Right. Um, I really want to talk about the sharks. Talk about the sharks, man. Okay. So, <laughs> all right. I, I don't know. Maybe this is off topic a little bit. But the whole thing where she dives into shark-infested waters 
that are it's like essentially full of like there's a meat pecking plant up the river i was like what is this chicago 1850 um there i don't know like stop and tell you a little story about chicago the meat packing industry in Chicago, right? There's a whole neighborhood called Back of the Yards. It was like the Union Stockyards. And part of the Chicago River was called Bloody Creek because they would like essentially shovel out all the like pieces they couldn't use in making meat into this one part of the Chicago River that was like so thick with like blood and scum that you would like walk across it. Oh, so disgusting. So this whole moment though, where she is like, I'm going to go out and get this thing. and I'm going to swim through shark infested waters and fight with a shark. I don't know. Like her bravery at that moment was so unreal to me because she doesn't know where he is and she's still like I am gonna go and I I don't care where he is I'm heartbroken I where is he why hasn't he called me and it's really again like metaphorically this moment where she's like I don't care I have to keep going I'm in shark infested waters and I have to keep going and then he does show up to save her but she needed saving and mm-hmm. it didn't it didn't bother me at that moment at all that she didn't save herself. And I can't quite figure out why. Because she saves herself constantly. She seems I mean, that's the thing is we we talk so much now in romance about how the heroine has to save herself and the heroine has to be the savior. And I mean, that's what I write, right? I write heroines who ultimately save the hero. But the reality is that when you write a strong heroine who's saving herself all the time, then you've established for the reader that she's okay. And so when she really is in a really dangerous pickle, yeah, the hero is going to come in and he's going to save her. And it's he's going to get the points for being noble and he's going to get the points for being heroic. And the reader is going to be overjoyed because they have an incredibly strong heroine and a hero who is her match. Right. Okay. And that's the joy of this. It's the joy of this whole series is that I think there isn't a single book in this series where they're not really beautifully matched um, at the end of the book. Yeah, absolutely. And I would just say also this question of uh, the rest of the series kind of being tacked, tied into this book is really fascinating to me because I have a really difficult time believing that Cressley was already thinking about 18 books Mm -hmm. right um but there are just so many threads on the page in this book that are there to be picked up later in the series and threads that are still unwoven right like like there's so many questions I have like so in the first book I feel like kind of lots of things get wrapped up but in the second book there are like lists of things where like we get way more about fury right and she's she is still out there (laughs) still drowning every day and there are gods and goddesses yes that are asleep the so all the valkyrie the valkyrie's main parents are asleep we get we get at the very end we get um sebastian with an opportunity to go back and perhaps like save his sisters or see them again. And we don't know if he ever did that. Um, We get, there's lists and lists of fascinating magical items in this, that, that are revealed in the talisman high that don't ever come into play again, but certainly could. 
right? And a bunch of lists, a bunch of talismans. I did have a moment as a writer where I was like, oh, this is so smart. Because there are a bunch of things that Kedrin has already won yes. that are in the possession of the Valkyries. And presumably at any time, one could turn up as a useful tool in the middle of a battle. Or a useful weapon to be used against them, right? And so, yeah, like you've introduced all of these like free agents into the system that at any point can just come right back. It's really remarkable. One of the one of the challenges, I think, with paranormal romance in general is that this sort of suspension of disbelief and the world building have to really tie together well, Mm -hmm. um, because if a world is built poorly, a reader is going to see the scars on it and see the marks where things are, are, aren't stitched together well. And the reality is that what Cressley is doing right now, even in, I mean, even in the last book, she was laying things down on the page so that ultimately if something were to happen and she were to sort of deus ex machina, right. If she were to deus ex machina, the kind of, yeah, if she were to bring bring one back in as sort of a, oh, but don't forget that we have this magic key that takes us back in time, you know? Right. Nobody would say anything because it's been there the whole time. Right. And it's just smart. It's just smart writing. It's smart planning as a writer. And she couldn't have possibly known on book two of this series that it would go on and on and that we would be making a podcast of it. Oh, later. I know. Absolutely. Well, I mean, or even like Katerin's sisters, like are it, they're so vital to this story, but I don't know if we ever see them again, <laughs> right? Like they're, they're, I guess we don't, right? Like they're just living in Val Hall now, I guess. Yeah. I mean, they're just extra, extra Valkyries. <laughs> they're, they're like spares, right? But I mean, and that's sort of, fa- I, here's though, let me say the the one thing that, that I, and I don't, I don't want to call it a disappointment, right? But I, I think it's like a maybe is and maybe it's the time or maybe it's whatever I don't want to make excuses for it but this also this book is where you really start to see it's like very European centric right all of the you know I'm kind of like oh you have all the immortals in the world but somehow they're all white people they're all straight you know like this is where we and and it takes a long time I think for her to to expand into some of that in a in a way that you know, we only see in like book 17 or whatever, a male, male couple. And, and I think part of that is, um, you know, part of it is the time, but I, I wish that, you know, Argentina and China and sub-Saharan Africa weren't just, um, like set pieces, but I think those could have been valuable opportunities to bring in interesting characters. And Mm -hmm. I, you know, I just have to name that like it is what it is. Right. But I think that this is one time I I think, you know, okay, all the immortals are like from Scotland and Russia. Cool. Cool. Yeah, it's a problem. Um, I do think as the series goes on, she starts to think about it more. But it's uh, it's looking back on it with a with an eye of 2018. Yeah, it's it's clear. Um, and so I'm glad that you named it. I'm, I mean, that's what we're doing, right? Yeah. And that's, you know what, like I said, it's just, I think it's just noticing it. Right. And I don't, I don't think I noticed it 15 years ago. Like we're different now and it's different now. And, and I think it's just okay to say, I noticed this thing. Right. Mm-hmm. 
But yeah, I think I'm definitely like, I would like more Dasha and Rika. <laughs> Maybe they're yes. just, you know, learning all those video games probably takes a lot of time. <laughs> it's true. If, if their learning curve is anything like mine. I love the Valkyries so much, I though. I love how much they love money. And oh, can we talk about money? Yes. We are. I know we're running out of time, but I want to talk about money. <laughs> I like talking about money. Oh, who doesn't? Um, so interestingly enough, uh, in the last book, we had Lachlan, who was chained in the catacombs and then came up and didn't have any sense of the modern world and didn't have any access to money. And he just started spending all of Emma's money. Yes. And in this book, we have Sebastian, who is doing a similar thing in that he is living at one point he's basically moved into Catherine's London apartment mm -hmm. and there's a scene there's a moment in the book uh, where he actually says like he goes there because he likes to sleep there um, and he likes to take showers there because the shower's warm and he's been washing himself with cold water and the snow melted snow and then he just says like this is these are beautiful things like everything that she has is so beautiful and living in her apartment is beautiful and he's really enjoying this new time this new world this modern modernity we go back to this as an echo and I think it's really interesting because like again all these dudes are very wealthy like I'm not worried that they you know are not gonna be able to get a job and take care of themselves but there is a certain sense in these books of like why are these dudes spending all this money for I me? I know. Well, and it's, I mean, I think part, part of it is, I mean, again, like romance signals very clearly that like the more, I mean, you know, America, right? It's gross. But the more money you have, like you're the powerful one in the, you're the, the you're the powerful one in the, in the relationship, the more money you have, Right. But interestingly, they don't have these men do not have that problem. No, they don't have that moment. And I sort of like that. OK, now you're making me realize like I'm I'm looking at myself in this, too, because definitely at the start, I was uh, like when I started two minutes ago talking <laughs> about this, I felt like oh, I don't love that they're spending all her money. But then at the same time, they don't like, have any problem with them. They don't, and they're also incredibly powerful women, so, like, why wouldn't they spend their money? And also, money's sort of a non-issue. Again, if you're immortal, you know... What's money? You're, You've got a... Money, money's fine. Well, I think the other thing, though, is there's a couple things, which is money and worrying about money is a very human... This is a human preoccupation, Right. And so they're immortal. So it has to be that their relationship to it is different. It wouldn't make sense for them to worry about money the same way we do, right? Like it because their concerns are like so much bigger than ours, right? Like the way they think about time and and like right, like it just must seem silly, right? So I, so I think part of it is it's it's one way to signal that they're just like at a different level than us. But I think there's also part of me that's like, yeah, they're all still like super rich and wearing cashmere sweaters. So it's also a way for us to enjoy like the that, I don't know, like the casual wealth 
of it too right like I do think paranormal books often kind of want it both ways right like oh they don't have to worry about money so they can just have all this money without worrying about it and then you can just sort of roll around in it right (laughs) well I mean if you think about something like J.R. Ward's Black Dagger Brotherhood series which is like constantly name checking luxury brands right like every everything is a luxurious but now it's dated because they're carrying razor phones, right? So I mean, I <laughs> so I think one of the smart moves here is like the Valkyries, like their love of like diamonds is. I actually was like, a diamond is forever. <laughs> yeah, call us De Beers if you would like to sponsor our podcast. The diamond things. <laughs> no, but you know what's crazy about the diamond thing is I had I, I had this thought where I was like. Maybe, like, there's a Valkyrie who just, like, works in a jewelry shop. Because <laughs> she can totally tell just by looking at something if it's, like, a real diamond or, like, cubic zirconia. But I think that, you know, like, K- Katerin is, so, you know, we didn't even really talk about Bowen, who's, like, her big competition. At one point, he, like, dangles this diamond necklace in front of her. And she's like, I really want that. And she ca- literally cannot look away. And this is, it's, it's playing with a thing about how women only want money and diamonds. And, and yet it's, it's like, it's fascinating. I don't know what to make of well, it, actually. It's also unapologetic. Oh, yeah. Which is kind of amazing. I mean, anybody who knows me knows that I'm, I'm pro-Kardashian. And part of the reason why is because those ladies have made millions on the backs of their bodies and their desires and their identity. And I think that's awesome. And I think that the Valkyries are very much that. Yeah. Like that experience of, I do like diamonds and I do like money and I do like video games and gimme. And and come at me if you have a problem with it because I will burn the world down. <laughs> well, and for, I mean, for Sebastian, there's some a very explicit thing where he's like, why would she want to get with me? I'm a bum. He literally has to like shave and and buy clothes and force himself to eat. So there's also this like almost like I have, you know, again, like I have to prove my worth. I mean, it's it like both plays into sort of classic capitalism, but also subverts it. And I can't decide yet. Right. Like I, yeah, I can't decide yet whether I think it's like working for me. I'm putting that on our list to come back to on other episodes. But I want to say, next episode, it's happening. So Bowen McCreeve, yes, who has been left in a cave <laughs> in a burning fire pit. I love at the that end at of the end. Book. They're like, oh, shit, we left him there for two weeks. Oh, well, he's been kind of a dick. <laughs> like, leave him in there, right? <laughs> so the next book is called Wicked Deeds on a Winter's Night. Um, it is told mostly somewhat in the same time oh yeah a lot of overlapping yeah mostly an overlap it's like an 80 percent overlap of this book it follows the talisman high um and bowen our werewolf friend uh thinks that he has lost he's basically he has nothing to live for he's lost his mate and um his there is a young witch um, Mariketta the Awaited, who we have met already. She was a part of this high. They are, it is enemies to lovers. 
Um, he cannot possibly have a second mate because he has lost his first one and you only get one in a lifetime. Um, and, uh, Mary and Bowen have to work together. Yeah. Even though they hate each other. Well, and we're going to have a special guest, which is even more exciting, right? right? Tell everybody about what they've won. We We have been like talking to all these other authors kind of on the down low. I'm not an author. All the you've been talking to other authors. I just like come along for the ride. And we're talking to Adriana Herrera, who I wrote a piece with. Actually, that's not true. She did all the work. I asked her interesting questions about domestic violence and romance for the smart bitches. And we started chatting and she was like, I love the immortals after dark. And we were like, do you want to be on our podcast? So she selected, she said, you know, we were like, well, which book is a question? It's really fascinating, actually. Like, which book would you want to talk about? And she immediately said that she would want to talk about this one about Bowen and Mariketta. So she's going to be our first special guest. And I think we're really excited to see what happens when there's now three of us talking. When there's three of us. Also, I would say there is a moment at the end of this book, book, what we're calling, what we're calling book four. No, book three. (laughs) What are we calling it? Book three. We don't even know. Two. Um, We're on two right now. Next time. There is a moment at the end of book three um, that I think is one of the most beautiful hero moments in romance. So I'm real excited to get there and talk about it. All right. Uh, That is our show. Long though it might be. And uh, we are super excited, you guys. Thanks for coming to our third podcast we hope you'll join us next time two weeks uh with adriana herrera uh talking about wicked deeds on a winter's night thanks so much see you guys next time well let me let me downshift into something slightly more silly because you know i'm constantly like what's like the line that made me either like like really what that made me laugh out loud and it was ace mcfuck up in a hunger like no other but in this one you know katarin has been she's not really you know when you don't have a lot of emotions you're not really interested in taking lovers and at one point regan asks her like well you know like who do you like in the past and Catherine tells her, I was always defenseless in the face of swine herds. What? <laughs> what? And I was like, really? She, like, Catherine had an overwhelming attraction to swine herds. And I was like, it's so specific. Like, why a swine herd? Why not just like a, I don't even know what you call the other herders. A shepherd? A shepherd. <laughs> I was like, I'm a city girl. Also, like, there's something super gross about, like, hanging around all day with pigs. I, I'm i with you, but I thought I it was... I don't know, Catherine. It was... And I feel like it also... <sighs> I missed that on both readings. Now I wish I, you hadn't said it. I literally was like, it's when they're in Antarctica. Maybe she was just, like, frozen with, like, crazy shit coming out of her mouth. <laughs> like, literally. But I was like, I was... And I kind of imagined her saying it in, like, a... You know, like a um, a streetcar named Desire kind of voice. Like I was always defenseless <laughs> in the face of swine herds. I could like, okay, Katerin, you're doing better now. <laughs> well, that and um, 
we do discover that Led Zeppelin is fascinated <laughs> by Valkyries in this book. So I was like, oh, I'm going to do this research. They make this joke, right? Like, uh, you know, Regan's listening to all these terrible songs. It's like Radar Love. <laughs> and she's got this like Antarctica play mix. And they make this joke about a, a Led Zeppelin song called The Battle of Evermore. And I was like, I should look this up and listen to it. And I listened to it for about 10 seconds and was like... So um, my conclusion, the only good Led Zeppelin song is Wish You Were Here and all the rest of them, especially the Battle of Evermore. (laughs) Wait, is Wish You Were Here a Led Zeppelin song? Oh, it's Pink Floyd. Yeah, see, there it is. The best Led Zeppelin song is a Pink Floyd song. 